Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Espen Fries Jensen, the co-founder of Userflow, a no-code platform for building, onboarding guides, and product tours. I originally interviewed Espen on episode 291, shortly after he'd exited his previous startup, Cobalt, an application security platform. Cobalt was a VC-backed company where Espen and his co-founders had raised $37 million and built a team of over 200 people. But with Userflow, Espen and his co-founder Sebastian decided to take a very different approach. They wanted to bootstrap the business and see how far they could get without fundraising or hiring a bunch of people. In this episode, we catch up on their progress and how they've successfully bootstrapped Userflow into a multiple seven-figure ARR business. We talk about the challenges of entering a crowded market and figuring out how to differentiate and position your product. And we chat about how focusing on building a great user experience and going all in with product-led growth has been critical in helping them grow quickly while staying small with a team of just three people. So I hope you enjoy it. Espen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Do you have a favorite quote? Something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? It's going to be different from last time. Yeah, I think last time when I talked about quality at speed, which was a uh, global value. But the one quote that always uh, stuck with me was uh, our when I was an accelerator with Cobalt, Adam Draper said, be the cockroach, which basically means that... Uh, if you just stay around long enough, uh, you're going to succeed at some time. At some point, I always uh, like that quote. Someone said to me the other day, I'm really impressed that you're still doing this podcast after like eight years. Nobody keeps doing it for that long. <laughs> and I was like, oh. when you just said that, I was like, I'm the cockroach. <laughs> yeah, and it, it seems to work. All right. So when we last spoke, you had just exited from Cobalt. That was a business that you guys had raised about 37 million, I think, growing the team to about 200 people. And then you had started to work with your co-founder, Sebastian, on Userflow. And the, the history behind this was that this was a product that Sebastian had been working on for a couple of years. There wasn't a huge amount of traction in that time, but definitely a focus on the product. When we spoke, you guys had been working together on this for about four or five months. Yeah. And so you were taking a very different approach here. You weren't going to raise money. You were going to focus instead of outbound sales. You were going to focus on a product led growth model. And you guys were really like, okay, we want to see how far we can get without raising any money. So how far have you gone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so back then, uh, it was just me and Sebastian. Uh, and I think we had help from one freelance designer. So the biggest change is that we've hired that freelance designer full time. So we are now three people. And we're still bootstrapping. And yeah, things are going really well. So so far, so good and are still growing, I would say, in, in revenue-wise in a way that you would expect from a VC-backed company. And so, so that's really good. So when we spoke, you were saying we've got a good trajectory, we can hit a million ARR. Where are you guys now? So we hit the 1 million almost, uh, yeah, I think one month after the episode went out. So, so yeah, that, that was a great milestone. And since then we've been growing, yeah, basically three X or uh, close to it. So yeah, uh, it's been fun and we're continuing to grow like between, yeah, five or 10% every month. Um, so yeah, it's good. So for people who aren't familiar, tell us about Userflow. What does the product do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? So, uh, the 
product that we give is basically like a no-code builder. So it's a software as a service platform where you, without being a developer, can go and build uh, in-app onboarding, checklists, guide, so basically tool tips and so on um, as a layer on top of your own software, but it's done without code. So you can be a customer success manager or product manager or a UX designer who's uh, building these kind of things. So so yeah, we're basically putting the task in the hands of the, the people who are normally owning that kind of stuff. And that, of course, uh, makes it possible to iterate quicker on building onboarding and also saves expensive developer time. And I would say the main use cases why somebody builds this kind of onboarding is that you want to convert maybe users in a free trial or freemium, or you want to retain users over time. So uh, onboard them better in general, but also when you introduce like new features and stuff like that. Okay, great. Now, a lot of the times when founders go into a new market, there's one extreme of this, which is they go in and they say, oh, there's no competition here. This is a completely you know, green opportunity or whatever you want to call it. And that maybe is not a really good place to be because if there isn't anybody else in that market, you're going to have to create demand. And that's like super, super hard. On the other end, you can go into a market where there are a lot of players, which is basically the situation with user flow and what you guys have done. It's a crowded market. And then so that's great in the sense that there's proven demand, there's a customer need and so on, but there's also a lot of competitors. And so you have to spend a lot of time really figuring out how you differentiate your product, where you fit into that market, what's the niche, persuading those people that you're a better product to choose. So let's start there. And when you guys looked at this market, how did you figure out where it made the most sense for you to sit? Was this based on really thinking just about what you knew about the product, the opportunity and the vision that you had? Or was this also by looking at competitors and seeing some of the potential weaknesses there and then using that as an opportunity to craft your positioning here. So how, how did you figure that out and where you sat in this? Market? Great question. So first of all, I mean, with Userflow, it's a highly competitive market. Uh, there's like 20 plus competitors. Some are better than others. But so we knew that when we went into the market. So it was my co-founder, Sebastian, who originally got the idea. Actually, back then, he was building another product for building like reusable kind of video recordings of a platform. So you can say similar kind of support use case, but in a different kind of way. And what he had done was he had, as part of that product, had built a product tour inside the product that guided the users to use that software he had built. And a lot of people were asking, how did you build that? Did you use some kind of third party tool? And then he got that kind of aha moment that, maybe I should switch to, to building this kind of product where you can actually build these kind of product tours. And then he went out and looked at the market and saw, yeah, there are a lot of players out there, but he tried to build flows with them and guides with them, and he found it super hard to use. So the UX wasn't up to par, at least not to, to the level that he expected. And he's a really strong developer, so he should, you know, I would argue that he should understand like most tools out there and, and he was still struggling a bit with some of those tools. So he decided to approach it in a new way. One thing we do very differently is like we have a Kanban kind of interface for building. Uh, so that's more into technicalities. But basically having a, a focus on making it easier to build these kind of guides uh, was the first kind of differentiator. So that's how back then he approached the market. Let's build a 
builder that can actually make it easier to build uh, these guides, but still keeping a high level of sophistication because uh, customers expect that high level of sophistication. But it shouldn't be, you know, a no-code builder should really be used by non-developers, right? So it doesn't work if if you need a developer to actually build. Okay, so let's dig into that a little bit more. For you guys, adopting a product-led growth model has been super important for you both in in terms of proving that you're building a better product with a better UX, but also with a team of, until recently, you know, two people, you don't have a lot of resources to to think about onboarding customers and support and stuff like that. So when you think about the, the product-led growth model, what does that mean to you guys and for Userflow? So product-led growth is, is a mindset, right? It's really right. Always think product first in everything you do. That's super important. And that's the mindset we have, right? So it's basically everything from how do we convert more trials? We should uh, get the product to better onboard them. So use user flow on user flow, use email, automated email to onboard users, but also just ensure that the UX of the product is super nice. So the first experience becomes super nice. So that's one thing. The other thing is like, whenever we have a support question, if we get it like 10 times or uh, even less, so uh, then we try instead of saying, okay, we need to hire more support people we fix it in the product itself. So I would say close to 50% of our product development time is spent on fixing UX challenges so we can make it easier for our customers. And then the second half is spent on developing new features. So it's really by having this really hyper-focus on the product and also staying close to the users of the product and understanding their needs that we are growing and, and are able to scale without having to hire a big sales or customer success team and so on. Okay, great. So when people are coming to the site, they can either start, I guess the two main call to actions are start a free trial or they can view a demo, which is basically you you give people a a 15 minute video where I think Sebastian takes them through what the product is all about. People can book a demo if they want, or they can go ahead and start the free trial. So when you talk about product-led growth, to me, the whole idea of making it easier for people to schedule demos and stuff like that feels like counterintuitive to what you're trying to do. So why was that something that you needed to offer that and make that pretty prominent on on the homepage? Yeah, I I wouldn't say it's super prominent. Primary call to action is still start a free trial. So that's, and that's what most uh, of our users do. And then this secondary call to action is view a demo. It's not schedule a demo. It's like view a demo. So go watch a video. But then, yes, we do offer the last opportunity. We do. I mean, it's basically allow understanding your end users. And there are some end users who who still prefer a demo. And you, we, we don't want to block them. But we're definitely serving self-serve end users, which are becoming more dominant a lot more. The other thing we're actually doing now when somebody requests a demo is I send a bit longer video to them first. So I'm still pushing everything I can to avoid that demo scenario because I know a lot of people say that demos are highly customized to the user. But in all honesty, now I've been in two SaaS companies, 80%, 90% of a demo is a demo, right? It's not, especially when you have very similar ICP, so similar ideal customer profile looking for the same problem and that you solve by having really good messaging on your website, right? You, you ensure 
that all your public marketing and, and messaging uh, attracts the right audience. Then when you get that right ICP, it's almost always the same problem they're facing and they're looking for the same solution. And that makes demos kind of um, generic. So that we're really trying to see, okay, how far can we get without doing an actual demo? And then if the users still want, like, then it, it's at least a meeting where you ask more sophisticated questions and you don't spend time on that, you know, baseline uh, demo presentation of your platform. Okay, great. How, how long is the free trial for right now? It's a 14-day free trial and sometimes we allow to extend it. But yeah, that's the default. And then what what is the aha moment? So we talk a lot about this in terms of we want new users to use the product and get to a point where they can un- connect the dots, they can understand the value of the product and how it helps them and hopefully convert from a trial into a paying customer. So I know that's an area that you guys are focused on as well. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Like what, what is that aha moment you're trying to get people to? And then what are some of the things that you're doing to make that easier and get more people there? Yeah. So for user flow, the aha moment is really how easy it is uh, to build the content, as I said, right? Like that's the, the, the initial aha moment. Okay, I'm a customer success manager or I'm a product manager, but I can initially build all these things. I can build flows, whatever, right? And it's easy. So that that's the number one thing for us. And that is what wows the, the audience. And then over time, there are other aha moments like the level of sophistication, version control, whatever. But that's the initial kind of aha moment. Um, the way we drive towards that is that we have, we use, as mentioned, user flow and user flow. So we the first time a user logs into a trial, they get a welcome message and then a flow that immediately guides them to build their first uh, flow themselves. So uh, they can go and basically build a flow right away. One thing that's a bit special is in order to release user flow for end users, you do need a JavaScript snippet to be installed in your application. And you often see these products where something similar is needed, some kind of initial integration or whatever. Uh, but what we've done uh, to remove that friction for the free trial is we built a Chrome extension. So you can actually go and build and preview content in your own app without installing that JavaScript snippet. So then you can actually try the product on your own app before you involve the developers. Um, so we're allowing customer success uh-huh. or product managers to completely independently experience the the wow effects, right? And, and I think that's that works really well. So basically, if I have to install JavaScript, I've just deployed the product to all my customers. Whereas if I'm using a Chrome extension, I'm the only one who's basically seeing you know, what's going on. You could, of course, install the JavaScript snippet and only for that user or only for a staging environment, right? But, but it's really about, uh, we don't want the customer success of product managers or whoever it is trying the product that they need to involve a developer to trial the product, right? That would be bad because uh, then you're already kind of creating friction, right? Uh, and and you want them to experience the value before they they need to do anything with developers. How did you figure out this idea of using a, a Chrome extension? Were you seeing a lot of problems, people getting stuck or... I think it was just an, it was like, a no, we all, some of our competitors also have this. Uh, so that was like a, a no-brainer, but... It's just, it's just a thing. It's such a big barrier to, to getting started that you don't want that, right? So if you can somehow load that 
Chrome extension, it's really nice, right? Uh, so I think it was just a no-brainer. I still see tools where they are very focused on getting that initial integration or initial thing done. And to be honest, I would be, I would maybe rethink that a bit. Is there something you could do either with dummy data or something where you could let them experience that value without having to do that? I think especially analytics tools have that challenge, right? That they often need some kind of source, right? Could you make that easier? Could you show them value without telling them to do that, right? Because the mm -hmm. other fear somebody has with this kind of stuff is I don't want to I'm just in a free trial. I don't want to send my production level data to this free trial, right? Then they have my data, right? I don't like that. So it's things like this. These kind of fears you need to remove. Now, you mentioned earlier that you you guys spend a lot of time fixing UX issues. And really, the UX is super important to you. And I think the fact that your first hire is a full-time designer backs up that, right? It's not just, you know, lip service. You actually do really care about the, the user experience, the, the product design, and so on. Can, can you give me a couple, maybe, you know, one or two examples of the kinds of UX issues that you're fixing or something that you, you guys recently worked on or, you know, very proud of because it, it was a significant issue for customers and you were able to unblock them? Just give us an example of, of the kinds yeah. of things that you're fixing. It's a lot of different things. I think one way is just like uh, discovering the features, right? That That's a common UX thing, like navigation, like how do you build your navigation, make sure it's simple, these kind of things, right? That's something where we we have a good core, I think, that, that works well. But something there is with user flow, it's a builder, right? And a builder needs to have a great UX because it's something you are using a lot, right? And you're really like in the weeds with it. It's not just like a menu or something that you click it's really like a builder where you're connecting different elements and you're like dragging and dropping and these kind of things right and one thing we are for instance very focused on is this whole both allowing to use the keyboard and the cursor right like this is a one thing for instance like many tools you can just use your mouse to move things around or whatever but actually using a keyboard is often much more user-friendly, right? You see that often with, if you if you work on a, like a, let's say a Google Docs, you can do everything with a keyboard almost, right? Like you can delete images, you can whatever. And we wanted to create that same experience with Userflow where it's like, it just feels natural that the way you delete is clicking backspace, for instance, on an element, right? And these kind of things. So those are things we're very focused on. How do you create that smooth experience where you can both use the keyboard and the mouse. And then more specifically, challenges we faced is like we had we have that Kanban interface. And in order to connect elements, different steps, you need to like connect the steps with a like a you click on one and then you connect it to the next. And we did see by doing like user research, and we used a tool called LogRocket, uh, we were able to see that some users were having challenges connecting the steps. And of course, we use userflow on userflow. So we have a guide that tells them how to do it, but there were, you know, users who don't want to do those kind of guides and they just dismissed it and then they tried on their own and they were not able to do it. So one thing we did there was to make it easier to see how those connections uh, should be done, right? Like it was about like highlighting, if they didn't create a uh, connection, then uh, highlighting at the right place where you need to add a connection. It was about making some kind of coloring 
that could better highlight where they do the connection and these kind of things, right? It was really like small science projects to figure out uh, how do you make it easy, right? And that's something our designer that we hired, he's extremely good at. And then Sebastian and I are really good at testing it, right? Like stress testing it and and really looking at it as well from a UX perspective. But our designer, he's super strong at getting that initial idea that we can then uh, thrash basically, right? Like say, okay, this doesn't work. Let's not do that. Like that becomes too much or whatever. And then we end up with a, a great solution. Yeah, I think the keyboard shortcuts thing is interesting. Yeah. Not only does it help you to focus more on streamlining the workflow, making it easier to use the product, you also make it more appealing to power users who want to you know, work in that way. Yeah. A few months ago, I, I switched to Superhuman and I was so resistant for so long because I was like, I am not going to pay 30 bucks a month for an email client to just to use <laughs> Gmail. It's stupid. It's a waste of time. Blah, blah, blah. And then I started to use it and went through you know, you get these daily emails on the onboarding about, hey, here's a keyboard shortcut for this. Here's a keyboard shortcut for this. And by the end of the first few weeks, I realized I was hardly ever touching my mouse anymore. And unfortunately, like, you know, I tried very hard not to like it, but I ended up liking it. And I think it's primarily because of those keyboard shortcuts and doing those things every day. Not only does it save you time and get things done faster, there's just this task completion feels more seamless mm. just by doing that. Right? Yeah. So I think I totally, totally understand. And I think you, you know, even if people don't want to use keyboard shortcuts, if you're thinking about designing a product that way, the chances are even the mouse click experience is going to be better and more streamlined as well. One of the big design things you always bring, there's like, a, you know, familiarity. That's, and I think that's where this, the most used interfaces in the world is like the document, right? Like a Google Doc or whatever. And it's just, there you have a lot of familiarity with how you copy paste text, how you select text, how you move text around, and everything can be done with both a mouse and a keyboard. And I think it's that same familiarity you want to create in, in other tools, right? Like have both capabilities um, to make it easy. Let's talk about pricing. I know one of the challenges that you guys had was you were getting people, most people were gravitating towards your startup plan, your your middle tier plan, or your, what you call your pro plan. Yeah. Wasn't as successful in, in attracting people, converting people. Tell me a little bit about what was going on there. What, what was the challenge that you guys were facing? Basically, it was that the pro plan wasn't strong enough uh, compared to the startup plan. We didn't have enough differentiation, really. We did have user space, so you can like you got more monthly active users on pro. And that's an easy one. We still have that. I think user space pricing is becoming a dominant factor in all product-led growth businesses. And we have that and it, it works very, very well. So that part was there. But we were seeing, we we're not seeing enough of users with a low level of MAUs, but maybe more kind of, they were larger businesses, but they were selecting startup because the differentiation was not um, good enough. So that's something we, we really, in 2021, uh, put a lot of focus on. So how can we make the pro package stronger? We kind of agreed that we didn't want to make the startup package weaker. So we kept the startup package as it, as it was, basically, uh, more or less. And then we looked at, okay, what can we bring into the pro package? What new features can we develop that will make the pro package? And some of the features we launched in 2021 was surveys. Uh, so now you can you know, do NPS surveys. You can ask questions as part of guides. 
Uh, you can do all sorts of things. So that was a big one, right? It, it, you can almost save an entire other tool by using our service. And then another one was no-code event tracking. So you could basically now set up like basic no-code event tracking where you tag an element and then track uh, certain events. So those were some of the things we added uh, to Pro. Uh, at the same time, we actually increased pricing on Pro a bit to make it also a more expensive package, but but it, we could justify it by adding those extra features in there. And that had enormous effects. Suddenly we were seeing a lot more people signing off for Pro and it quickly became a very dominant package. So so yeah, that was the right choices we made there. So the starter is at $200 a month. Yeah. The Pro is $600 yeah. a month. What was the pricing of the two plans a year ago before you started to make these changes? I think startup was maybe also 200 maybe 150 I don't remember. And Pro was around 400 something like that. So yeah, we increased the pricing a bit. Yeah. How did you figure out what features to add into the Pro plan? Yeah, I think it's really about what are those features that give superpowers, right? Compared to what is core. You don't want to, like if something is core, you should not put it in the pro plan, right? Like, because then you will annoy users. So to be able to build a core onboarding, everything you need to do that, you can basically do in the startup package. But as soon as you want to do those superpowers, like surveys, like I want to ask questions as part of my onboarding so I can better personalize it. You know, I want to have more than one checklist so I can, you know, have an advanced checklist or a checklist for a specific other user and these kind of things. Those kind of superpowers, that's what we added to Pro, right? And and that is what basically the, the users then found attractive. I want to give one small thing we didn't do. We, we always kept old legacy users, and I think that's the SaaS rule of thumb, right? And I think the Sendesk rule or whatever you want to call it, you should keep, I think that's good SaaS practice. Keep your old users on whatever plan they on, right, from the past. But then when, as soon as they want to change, maybe have some of these new pro features, uh, then they need to change to the new model, right? Uh, but don't change their plan and pricing. Keep that legacy there until they make an active decision to move on to a new uh, package, right? Yeah, I don't know. Some people have very strong feelings about those, right? Whether you grandfather them or you should raise prices on them. and Yeah, I think grandfathering is is fine because at some point you're going to make the packages strong enough that they are, they're inevitable to like switch, right? And then you have them. That's what happened with us. Like they started switching. We still have a few on like some legacy plans, right? But the majority has switched to the newer plans because of certain features they wanted. So the the features you added in, you, you know, these superpowers you you describe by being able to run surveys or figure out NPS or or these the event tracking, the no code event tracking. Yeah. How, how did you figure that out? Was it just like you guys just sat down and said, "Let's make a list of things and we'll go and work on this," or did you run surveys and ask customers, or did how did you figure it out? I mean, we stay close to our customers, so uh, mo- almost all our features are co- based on customer requests. I don't think, yeah, no. Except for the UX things where we figure out ourselves that, okay, this is a UX thing where we are seeing an issue and the customer might not necessarily be telling us directly, but we are seeing the issue and then we want to fix it. Uh, But all the other features is something customers are coming to us to ask about. And this can be driven by certain needs they have. It can also be driven by them looking at our competition and saying they have this, you don't, whatever, right? So you do both competitive analysis, but you also listen to your customers. And I think that's one of the fantastic things about being a 
small team, right? As we're still super close to our customers. We still lock everything. We we act like we're a big company. We lock everything in a list. We keep track of how many customers have requested this. So we have a good kind of way of looking at and prioritizing, uh, but that's the way we do it. So we basically look at, okay, uh, we when we get a request, we log it, and then we keep track of how many have requested this over time. Okay, great. Let's talk about, you, you introduced a new feature called Resource Center, which yeah. you said has been pretty successful in terms of attracting users, expansion revenue, that sort of thing. Tell me, what is the feature? What does it do? Yeah, no. So, uh, I mean, with Userflow, before the uh, you could do, you know, checklists, flows, uh, hotspots, whatever. So you can better onboard users and also announce new features and do things like that. But what the resource center is, is that it goes a bit beyond the initial onboarding and feature announcements and these kind of things. It's basically like an always on widget. So uh, you can say today uh, or in the last five, 10 years, the chat providers have been owning that bottom right corner, right? And I think it's time that changes a bit. We want to see if we can take over that right bottom right corner with our resource center. So it's an always on widget where you open it. Uh, you can have a search into knowledge base. You can have a search into all your in-app flows. You can also connect your chat. So you can open up like an intercom or something from our resource center. So it becomes like this uh, widget that's there to always help the user. And initially we had, just like any other feature, we had gotten requests for this from customers. And it was a, some of our competitors had it already, some didn't, but also our customers were requesting it a lot. And initially, just like surveys and no-code event tracking, we kind of were thinking, okay, let's see, maybe it's one of the next features we need to add to Pro. So we started building it and then we released it for a couple of like uh, beta users and we don't like to my co-founder don't like the word beta because whatever we release is always complete so it's not a beta it was but it was like a a test uh, group of people but and basically the feedback was just insane like uh, with both service and no code event trials we had gotten good feedback but with this it was just like wow right it was like um can you do, you know, it's great when somebody starts. It. The first thing we did actually was before we even released it to that test group was that we built it into our own app. So we use Userflow and Userflow and we added it to our own app. And within a day or two, we got like 20 requests asking, how did you build that uh, thing in your app, right? Like, can we get that as well? And then we just like, okay, this feature is really uh, sought after and and then we actually decided to not make it a pro feature and make it a core feature instead because it was something we could see. This is something everybody needs. It's not a superpower. It is a superpower, but it's a superpower everybody deserves to have for their users. Yeah, no, I, I thought originally it was kind of like an expansion thing. And then I, I was, while you were talking, I just noticed that it's part of the, the startup plan. So everybody yeah. gets access yeah. to this. Exactly. Why was this? I mean, if competitors were were doing this, if they, this was something that people were asking you for, why why was it such a surprise? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a. I mean, our customers ask about a lot of stuff, right? They ask about resources, and they ask about you know um, service. And some customers are not even thinking about this, right? They there are some customers who ask about it, but there's like a lot of customers. I would probably say beyond fifty percent. We don't even think about asking these things, right? They, they're just happy with the existing 
things you have. And then not until they see the new stuff, then they get excited, right? And with service and no-code event tracking, yeah, there was some excitement. But with this, it was just like everybody, all those users who maybe hadn't asked about it, they were, you know, excited about it, right? And that was the difference. So I would say we probably had the same number of customers requesting surveys or requesting no-code event tracking. But the, the it was those last, the ones who didn't ask about it, they received it. Uh, much better than those other features. And I think that that's kind of the reaction you like. And then what always happens when you add like these kind of super feature or new features, then it's it becomes something, okay, then we also need this, right? Now you need to you integrate with Intercom. Ah, but we use Help Scout and we use HubSpot and we use, you know, whatever. And suddenly it becomes something where everybody just expects that it works perfectly with their uh, setup, right? Even though that feature was not there at all, like uh, a, a couple of months ago, now it's like a thing where they expect uh, that all those things are there. And that's something we like as well, right? That challenges us to further expand on that uh, product. Uh, so it's awesome. How do people find user flow? You're not doing any outbound. Where's the bulk of your traffic coming from? So I actually have an outbound email campaign running, but it's not very successful. Uh, not <laughs> something I'm paying a lot of attention to, but I just have it for, for fun of it. But yeah, no. So um, when when I joined Sebastian, he was very dependent on ads. Uh, that was the primary source of new. And then, of course, word of mouth. And word of mouth and ads are still big uh, sources for us, and they've only expanded. We've also invested more into ads because it works. But the thing we added, uh, the first thing I added to that was um, uh, SEO. Uh, and the way we did that was uh, starting this uh, focus on thought leadership within product-led growth. So basically we are, you know, product-led ourselves. We are very like, that's how we grow our business. But also the product that we are giving is something that helps you be- do onboarding for as a product-led growth business. So we are a vendor in the product-led growth space. And that made it the perfect kind of thought leadership area for us to be in, like where we could speak about how we think about product-led, how we approach it. And then we can also think about how you can do things with user flow to approach it. Uh, and and that's been really successful. So been writing blog posts about product-led growth, uh, been in podcasts, media, whatever. And that has helped grow our SEO. I think I read... Uh, a book I can recommend is the product-led SEO by, I think it's called Eli Swartz, um, which the way he thinks about SEO is really, and that really hit me, is like, it's not about like uh, all these technical things. Yes, those should also be there, right? Like you need to have the baseline in order, like your pages should be working. But basically, uh, it's it's much more about acting with authenticity writing stuff with authenticity and integrity and these kind of things, that is what drives the traffic. So was that the book that you use as sort of a framework to figure out what to write about? Because that's always the hard thing, right? It's just like, what do you write about? And how do you keep writing about it and, and keep publishing interesting stuff? So, yeah, no, for me, it was really easy, actually, because I was so passionate about Product Girl. And I think that is what it's about, right? Like, People can initially see if it's it's fake, right? Like maybe some can get away with writing content that's kind of weak or, and still that drives SEO. But for me, it was really a, a true passion for product-led growth and understanding things like how to build good product-led onboarding, what tools to use in product-led growth, and and that that has that kind of 
passion and, and interest in the space allows you to be much more authentic uh, about what you write, right? So, so I think that's important. So find that area that fits well with your business, but that you're also passionate about. Otherwise, I don't think it, it's going to work that well. You, you said you don't sort of necessarily sort of think about this in the traditional sort of SEO way, but are, are you are you still doing keyword research and using that as a guidepost for, for the kinds of things you write about? No, we don't use it for the... Uh, I don't use it for my articles. I don't think about what words I put into the articles. I just, you know, rely on what I write is when I write with that theme of product-led growth, you know, it's going to work because product-led growth is what people are searching for, product-led onboarding. But we use it a bit for ads, right? We also have used, one thing you can always do with SEO is competitor pages. That always works well. That's something I can recommend for SEO. It's like alternative pages, you know, these kind of things. And, but that's again, the technical baseline. I think the biggest SEO driver for us has been that I've been authentic and, uh, around the content I bring to the world. And also because of that, I able to go on third party channels, right? Instead of writing a bunch of stuff on our own blog, which to be honest, nobody reads the blog, (laughs) let's just be honest about that. Uh, or not a lot of people read it. Uh, you can go on these third party channels where they have a lot of like readers or listeners and so on. Right. Um, so, so I think that that is what uh, matters. So it's about having that story. Uh, I know there's uh, you probably know, Andrew Castelli. That's one of the things he's like super passionate about. Nobody tells the story better than the founders. Right. And that's basically the, the recipe we've been uh, following. So, so basically it's, it's kind of more like guest posting, finding sites that already have an audience. And then pitching. Being very proactive, being in the community, being on all the community channels of that and keeping an eye on what what areas are there, what channels can you go on, right? And and community-wise, it's one new thing we've done is, and that's the latest addition, is we started a community called Product-Led Stack. And we're going to try to see if that works. So it's something, it's a strategy that many product-led growth businesses are following that they start a community. It's super hard because it needs a lot of like work to kickstart and how do you drive engagement? And we decided not to make it user flow specific, but instead make it continue on this thought leadership within product-led growth and make it more product-led tooling specific. So focus on what tools in general do you need in your product-led stack? And so, yeah, so far it's we have, I think, 200 members, but it's uh, it's growing. It's fun. So let's see how it goes. Where's the bulk of your traffic coming from? Is it SEM, SEO, word of mouth? Word of mouth, SEM, and SEO are the three major channels. Word of mouth is so hard to track, right? Because it, and it's the difference between SEO and word of mouth. It, it just becomes kind of one big bulk. I wouldn't say there's a good tool for tracking where something comes from there. But SEM is easy to track, right? So I can see... SEM uh, pretty easily. So uh, word of mouth, you don't have an affiliate program or anything like that. Yeah, we we had like a we had like a bit of affiliate, but no, we don't like give money. It was mostly for like a few consultants who were supporting some customers, but no, not a customer referral program. Um, yeah, it's word of mouth, and yeah, we can see from G two you can you can empower your word of mouth by being on G two, Captera, and these kind of sites, right? Uh, which people are are looking at. But we see that more, it's sometimes an initial source, but it's also much more a credibility thing that we show to 
people who are evaluating Userflow, right? That they already found us, but then they can go and look here and see we have uh, a lot of happy users. So Now on the SEM side, I assume that's just AdWords, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's rare for me to talk to a founder who's using AdWords and saying, yeah, it works. So what are you doing there? What kind of keywords are you targeting other than user onboarding software? And exactly. what's it costing you ballpark to, to acquire leads through there? Yeah. So I think SEM works because we're in a competitive space and it's a problem that a lot of people want to solve. So it's product-led onboarding or user onboarding, or SaaS user onboarding, whatever, is something a lot of people are searching for on Google. And that that helps, right? So we have a solution-based campaign focused on that. We have, like everybody else, have alternative campaigns, right? And all our competitors have that as well. So so those are the two main things. And we get the, the most from solution-based, but we get the highest quality from alternative, of course, because they already knew about a competitor and or whatever did that, right? But cost per conversion, it depends. I would say we've been experimenting a bit. Sometimes we increase our budget to see how far can we go up before it starts to diminish in value, right? So I think we found like a, a good like $300 per conversion and a conversion for us is a free trial. It, that's that's a good level. Sometimes we try to increase it and then we end up on like 500, 600, 700, and maybe that's not as good as we want it to be. So we're trying to find that budget balance where it's like making sense, right? So, so yeah, uh, but it works for us. And you can say, with a, let's say if it's $300 per conversion, it's we, we just need them to pay for almost like a month, right? Then then it's almost paid back, right? And so Right. But but that's that, that's three hundred dollars for a trial. Yeah, a trial. And then how how many trials do you do you need to convert into a customer? Probably I think it's like thirty, twenty, thirty percent, something like that at the moment. But it's still, you know, then we have the pro plan, which is, you know, six hundred. So it's like yeah, it pays back and it, it hasn't been a problem for us. So I would say that's, I would say all our competitors also on that. So it's like, uh, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets. They all know uh, what's going on and, and they can see it. I think it's such a big market. Like there's room for 20 competitors apparently, which is interesting to me. I've never seen that in any other market before. Uh, yeah. but there's such, such a demand for our product, right? All right. So I think we should wrap up. Get on to the lightning round. You've done this before. So I'm yeah. going to ask you seven quick fire questions. See if I succeed this time. <laughs> yes. All right. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, I think last time I say stay focused on doing one thing really well, which I'm still a strong believer in. But the other thing is just product-led growth, right? Like do product-led growth and jump into it. It's it works and believe in it and take a take a, a, a risk on it. That model, it's super strong. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? So now I mentioned Product-Led SEO by Eli Swartz. So that's definitely a book I recommend, but also Product-Led Onboarding by Ramley John and Wes Bush is another great book. They made the Product-Led Growth book, but the, I think last year they, they did a follow-up book, which is more focused on Product-Led Onboarding which is the space we we play in at Userform. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Last time I said grit, I think this time, and also given the market we're currently in, adaptability is super important for a founder. Like how can you change your mindset in a tough situation, right? And with Cobalt, we did a pivot, for instance, when we were in a tough situation, 
with Userflow, we are constantly reevaluating how we should approach things. We never, you know, we never stress, right? You should never stress, but you should be adaptable. You should uh, take things in a calm way, but be adaptable and be open for new things in the market. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? So I'm a bit big structure nerd, but uh, I think the, the one thing I'm a big advocate for these days is synchronous videos. For instance, with Loom, it's something I wish more people would do because it actually, it saves a lot of meetings, right? Uh, because one would always say, I, I can't explain this uh, in text. I need to explain it in a meeting, but now you have a video. So just explain it in a video and send it. And then uh, you give the recipient a lot more time to think about the issue and give the right answer, maybe in a, in a video as well. So I think asynchronous videos is here to stay and will only grow more. Uh, I think I talked to somebody about this before and I was like, you know, the one thing that would be really cool is if it was like, you know, like you have a limit for tweets. Yeah. You, ha you had a time limit on yeah. how much you can talk because some people That's talk true. too much on video, man. That's for Loom to solve. I agree, right? Like sometimes <laughs> when I get like some videos, it's like it starts with a long intro of something that doesn't, matter at all. And then in minute number eight, that's where they actually ask the question, yeah. right? And yeah, but it's, I, I think it's still better than sitting in a meeting for 30 minutes or having to schedule a meeting to solve something you could have solved over a, a email or, or chat. Yeah. What's a new crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I'm still uh, looking for somebody to create that software as a service CRM. I wrote an article on it. I'm uh, constantly looking at the market. It's still not there in my view, but yeah, it's it. That's an area I'm super interested in. Is this how, especially with product-led growth, how will the how will the tooling change? How do we need uh, to do our CRM? And also on top of that. How will the SaaS organization change? Do we need to simplify the SaaS organization? Does sales and customer success need to merge, for instance, which is something I believe, but these kind of things, and it all comes back also to tooling then, because today you only have these like five different tools for, as you have a customer success tool, a marketing tool, a sales tool, but you only have that because of a very complex organization, really, right? So if you simplify the organization, you can also simplify the tooling. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? So uh, last time I think I mentioned I was born in Tanzania. Uh, but yeah, the, the one fun thing uh, over the last two years, I've been living in Airbnbs every month in different places in the US and one month in French Polynesia, basically working remote. Nice. It's been fantastic. So I, yeah, I did it before the Airbnb founder did it himself. Uh, I think he started doing it this year, right? But yeah, good. I could be an inspiration to him. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? It's uh, exploring the nature, or hiking or biking. That's really what I enjoy. I'm currently in Utah, uh, most fantastic place in the U.S. Highly recommend everybody to to go here and and go hiking in one of the national parks. Well, thank you for joining me again and for the update. And congratulations on getting into multiple seven figures with Userflow. If people want to check out Userflow, they can go to userflow.com. Yep. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn. Espen Christians on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Great. Thanks, Espen. It's been uh, great. Enjoy the rest of your time in Utah. And uh, I'm sure we'll be catching up again soon. It sounds good. Yeah. Great chatting with you. Yeah. Same here. Cheers.